Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, with the latest installment of the Housing Wire Daily Podcast, where our editors and reporters discuss the most compelling stories and sources they're covering. Today, my guest is senior real estate reporter Matt Blake. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. At PennyMac TPO, you'll get live access to underwriting managers, real bend-over-backwards people, the kind who care about your success as much as their own. As a PennyMac TPO partner, their credit solutions team is standing by to help you quickly solve any underwriting issues throughout the loan process. PennyMac believes the road to greatness is paved with dedicated support. For more information or to price a loan, go to tpo.pennymac.com. PennyMac TPO is a division of PennyMac Loan Services, LLC, Equal Housing Lender, NMLS ID number 35953. Loans not available in New York. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Conditions and restrictions may apply. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Happy to be on. So happy to have you on. We have had some really big stories on the real estate beat over the last week or since the last time I talked to you. Um, and the first one I wanted to um, start off with was the one about Knock. So so the headline is Knock raises $220 million, lays off 46% of its workforce. And this this just seems counterintuitive to me, but this has been, you know, the kind of thing that we've talked about both real estate and mortgage companies. They raise a bunch of money and and they do layoffs, which seems sort of counterintuitive. So so can you walk us through that story a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So Knock is a company they started eight years ago in New York City um, by Sean Black. And Sean Black is the co-founder of Trulia which is, of course, the home listings company that eventually got acquired by Zillow. And so basically, Knock has gone through a few different uh, iterations with their business model. But overall, their business model is that they're a power buyer. And what that term means is that basically, they are going to find a loan for you, the potential home buyer, so that you, the potential home buyer, can buy a home in cash. And the idea is, is that because we're in a competitive housing market, because there's a perpetual shortage of housing, you need a cash offer to be competitive. And so Knock is giving you that competitive advantage. And, and then you basically work with them um, in, in terms of securing the home. And so they're kind of a hybrid of both kind of a lending company, they have loan officers, but also kind of a real estate company in terms of being at the front end of the housing process in terms of, you know, um, trying to uh, get people, you know, homes that they can live in. And so in terms of the news last week, it was, I would say, uh, kind of surprising the, the the way the news was presented. Usually when a company lays off 46% of its workforce, um, it's, you know, presented very soberly by the company, if at all. Um, but what happened was, is that 
uh, Sean Black wrote a long blog post on his website saying that Knock um, was going to go public uh, last year through a special purpose acquisition company and saying that, you know, everything was firing on all cylinders last last year and, and that all of his dreams, I think he literally wrote like all of my dreams are coming true. And then he basically in this blog post, which which my article kind of extracts the highlights from, he basically blames a bunch of like huge external forces. And by huge external forces, I'm saying he's not like blaming like, you know, the L.A. housing market went down. He's blaming COVID. He's blaming the Delta variant, the Omicron variant. He's blaming uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He's blaming these sort of grand uh, worldwide, you know, catastrophes as as sort of the reason that um, markets were cool to knock and 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 why knock could no longer go the SPAC route a, as a publicly traded company. And so, basically, he's saying that that because of these large forces and and because of also a lack of investor confidence, he says in real estate tech companies because of Zillow winding down its iBuying, Knock has to lay off 46% of its employees, which are um, about 120 or so employees. Knock has approximately 250 employees. And so also he's saying, though, we're raising $220 million. We're raising this money to, to update, to modernize, you know, what we're doing to improve our platform. And it's, it's, it's sort of this... I don't, I don't know, like the, the, the timing of announcing both is very odd to me. Um, I, I guess like maybe I, I, I cannot, I have not spoken to the venture capital investors who gave knock this money. So I do not know if sort of like trimming down their workforce was or was not sort of a prerequisite for getting this money. Um, maybe like one happened way before the other, but sort of, you know, you want to give like good news or bad news. But basically, I guess the point is here is that NAC is trying to be a much more slimmed down operation and and still expanding into more markets. They mostly operate in the South, but but, but ex- expanding into markets in, in order to do this power buying um, with, you know, a much lower workforce. Yeah. I mean, other companies have done the same sort of timing where it's like, we raised this, we're cutting mm. people. Um, so it, it w- would be interesting to know yeah. if that was, you know, investor required, if that was part of the requirement or, um, you know, definitely understand that, like, if they thought they're going uh, public and had this grand amount of money and now they have less, that makes sense. I think, I think the reasons that he gives in the blog post seemed a little odd to me, just like you. I mean, the COVID variant and the Delta variant did really had no effect on, on people wanting to buy homes. So they had a, the effect of, on a lot of things, right? But I mean, we've had a blockbuster year as far as that. And the other thing that I think is interesting is that, and we talked about this last summer, if COVID isn't the perfect time to, if this sort of environment isn't great for eye buying, when, when will it be great or power buying, however you want to say it? Because you know, it's like, it's a very competitive market. It's a very, um, people have a hard time finding a home after they've sold their home. So it it would seem like this would be a really good environment for that kind of company, but they're not the only one, obviously that have struggled with this. So, you know, the fact that they cite 
Zillow's uh, winding down iBuying. I can understand how that would probably make investors look twice. We saw a lot of the headline news on that was like, Mm -hmm. people were like, there's something wrong Mm -hmm. with the iBuying model. Whereas, you know, some of our reporting was like, maybe it's just the way that Zillow did it. But um, so from that perspective, I guess, you know, you can, you can look at that, but I, I thought the same thing. I was like, wow, here's another company that's, you know, raising money and laying people off. Yeah, I would just quickly add to that. Um, you know, I mean, iBuying and power buying are pretty different. I mean, the power buyers are very quick to say that. And and they're right. I mean, iBuying is, you know, I I buy your home for cash and and then it's, you know, the impetus is on me to resell it whereas power buying is that is is more of kind of like a bridge loan where sort of I'm getting a loan in order to like get the cash to um, buy a home on your behalf. So in a way, power buying could be less risky of a strategy, but that speaks to what you were just saying about, you know, Zillow winding down its iBuying. Like why, why is Zillow winding down its iBuying sort of like, um, you know, why, why is that a threat to knock? And, you know, I mean, if investors are so fickle that, you know, they're like, oh, Zillow wound down its eye buying. Knock is also a real estate company that is trying to do this newer thing. Let's not invest in Knock. Like, I mean, it, it, it just doesn't strike me as, as a very stable business model then. Yeah. And thanks for clarifying the difference between eye buying and power buying. I, I have to say that it's not that clear to me <laughs> what that difference is. Right. Um, but but there is a difference. So let's pivot and talk a little bit about Compass, um, another company that you've covered really extensively over the whole time you've been at HousingWire. Um, what are some of your reporting right now on Compass? What are you uh, what are you looking at? Yeah, there's a few different things going on with Compass. I spoke last week with Len Steinberg, who is their um, chief evangelist, is is his title, and and he leads a real estate agent team in New York City. And when, when Leonard Steinberg joined Compass, um, I, you know, I think about eight years ago off the top of my head, it was uh, a huge coup for uh, the brokerage. It kind of showed their weight in the New York City real estate market. And um, anyway, I spoke with him and I was like, what is Compass's profitability plan? And he said, I'll let you know in two years. And I was like, you know, I mean, why two years? And he was like, I'll let you know in two years. Like what, you know, is the timing for, for two years? And he just kept kind of repeating that. And so it was a somewhat frustrating conversation, but it, it per- maybe, um, you know, unexpectedly provided some clarity in, in terms of kind of where the company is as obviously this is Leonard Steinberg. He's the chief evangelist, but you know, it's not fair to for compass to like equate him with Robert Refkin the, the, or, or Kristen Ankerbrandt, the, the CFO, but, but still, I mean, it gives you sort of an insight in, into at least like how one high ranking person on, on compass is sort of, I don't know, addressing questions that they may get about sort of profitability or, or where they are. Um, in the meantime, what, what's happening with Compass? They, you know, are growing tremendously, but losing a bunch of money. Um, they've decided to uh, lower the stock um, awards that they give to employees. It's sort of a modest lowering instead of like I think stock awards vesting every year. It's something like every four years. So basically, what I'm trying to look at right now is speaking 
to Compass agents and trying to see if their stock-based compensation is declining. And I think that, I mean, it depending on like when you joined Compass as an agent, um, some of your compensation um, is, you know, tethered to your stock in, in addition, you know, to obviously being tethered to the commissions that you get on real estate sales. And this was part of the way the Compass was very successfully able to recruit, um, you know, big name, high profile agents and, in, in, you know, flashy, you know, you know, affluent neighborhoods in places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, even uh, so on and so forth. And I think that like, I mean, this is just sort of uh, trying to uh, understand and explain to everyone kind of where Compass's stock compensation situation is. But um, I think it speaks to a much larger question, which is that there's sort of a divided compass. And, and that divide is on the one hand, the company is performing uh, poorly uh, financially in the sense that they um, not only are losing a lot of money, but um, are, are losing more money each year. And there's nothing really when you look at their business model that would suggest that they can reverse course with that. But on the other hand, you know, and it's really, you know, if you're going to do reporting on Compass, it's, it's, un, it's you know, you have to mention this. It's, it's agents are happy, um, as happy as agents at other places. Obviously, Compass has thousands of agents. From, so for me to say it's agents are happy, you know, it's a, quite a generality. But, you know, many agents I talk to there are happy. They do like Compass's tech platform. They do feel like, they're maximizing their ability to be um, the agents they can be at Compass. And so the question then is, is at what point does Compass's poor financial performance really affect the livelihood of their agents? And so stock compensation may be an inflection point where Compass might go to agents and be like, hey, look, I know we said this one thing. I know we have in a contract this one thing, but we need to negotiate lowering your stock compensation. That's a great point. Um, and I like the, I like the fact that you bring up, you know, this is a multidimensional thing. We, we can look at, you can measure a business by many things. We know that many startups in Silicon Valley, I mean, many very famous ones, right. They, they're uh, judged successful, even though from a profit standpoint, they, they, they don't make money. Right. So um, and there's mm-hmm. a long, you know, horizon on that for for companies now, and in, in sort of a different way. So um, interesting to look at both, you know, the profitability and the path to profitability, and also what it is that how agents feel. Which, you know, you could say is is sort of the secret sauce of any brokerage if they're going to be successful going forward is that they do. So I I like the fact that you're thinking then, okay, well, what is the you know at what point does the pro- profitability affect the agents? Which that could be. That could be significant, but at, at this point, it's not. So, um, j- just a really interesting story. I think you know one of the things we try to look at is like what is the what is the business model of different companies, whether it's brokerage, whether it's uh, you know in the real estate or in mortgage. Like, how are they making it work? And this year is going to be particularly challenging, right? We don't have the we don't have the refi volume on the on the mortgage side, and just on the real estate side, we just have such low inventory. It could be you know, this is, this is a challenging year for everybody. So we're kind of looking at it. And that's really what I want to talk to you about next was um, the story you did on OfferPad proposes an iBuyer agent marriage. So really interesting there. So talking about iBuyers again, but also 
you know, how, how they're looking at potentially bringing in agents in a different way than other iBuyers did. So, so walk us through that story a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so OfferPad is, I mean, I, I, I talked a bit actually on this podcast about them a few weeks ago, but basically they're an iBuyer at a smaller scale than um, Opendoor or, or that Zillow was uh, before Zillow started winding down its iBuying. But, you know, they're a company that is, they're only seven years old. They just became public. And so in terms of the story about OfferPad using real estate agents, I was looking through the company's first ever yearly report. These things, if you look on the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, website, they call them 10Ks. And these 10Ks are, are, are basically, you know, pretty voluminous reports that, you know, they don't show everything about the company, but they show kind of the company's mission, where the company, you know, says, you know, warns potential shareholders, like, don't buy our stock because of this, you know, company disclosures. And one of the things I learned about OfferPad sort of in that 10K was um, the number of employees that they have who are real estate agents and the number of sort of space in that yearly report that was dedicated to discussing the role of real estate agents. And so, I mean, like, let's not overthink this. Like, iBuyers and real estate agents are in theory at odds with each other. I mean, if you're a real estate agent, you know, you want to represent a home seller. But if you're an iBuyer, you want that home seller to not use a real estate agent and just buy the home from you for cash. And, and, and you know, to that point, you know, Open Door, um, you know, and Open Door hasn't been like totally anti-real estate agent. I shouldn't oversimplify their position. But, you know, like part of the appeal of iBuyers, like, oh, the real estate agent, like, you know, taking their cut, you know, meddling in, you know, do we need this middleman anymore? Let's just go to an iBuyer and get this all done with. And so the the two are kind of traditionally at odds with each other, I think. So my story is showing that of the thousand or so employees at OfferPad, 250 are agents. And that's also remarkable because... Usually agents are independent contractors. They get paid on commission. These agents are employees. They get a nominal salary. They get health care. Most of their money is, is paid through bonuses um, as opposed to commissions, but you know, bonuses tethered to home sales. Um, and so it's, it's a different model in the sense that OfferPad is trying to give consumers the option of either they have this program called OfferPad Flex, where basically it's either you, um, you know, decide to instantly sell your home to OfferPad for cash. And you have 90 days to decide that, I think. Um, some, something like that. I believe it's 90 days. And then, but you also list your home on the market in multiple listing service. And so if you're the seller, it's like, oh, I can sort of test the waters. Maybe I can get a much better deal. Um, on the real estate market right now, or I can decide, eh, I don't want to go through like this process and, and I can, um, you know, just get the instant cash offer. And then the offer pad agents are also working on the buyer side where they may represent people who have, you know, sold their home to offer pad or anticipating selling their home to offer pad and then need to buy a new home. And so I, I thought it was interesting in, in just that they're, I mean, hedging their bets would be one way of putting it. I think 
maybe a more like proactive way of putting it is, is that they're trying to, I guess, give consumers a choice. And, and it's also kind of, you know, I think if you're a real estate agent reading my article, it's sort of, um, you know, you'd be pretty happy. I mean, it's sort of like a sign that, um, it's a sign that, you know, this iBuying company basically is like, we need real estate agents and, you know, very few business models right now, if you look at sort of these, you know, companies that are trying to do something new, the cliched word is, you know, disrupt, um, you know, knock, offer pad, ribbon, all these companies are using real estate agents in one sense or another. Like there are very few companies out there right now um, that are basically saying, we're going to, you know, disrupt the real estate agent out of the home sale. And, you know, and I think the offer pad story shows that. Really interesting because, you know, there is no love lost, generally speaking, between <laughs> real estate agents and the disruptors, right? Um, I mean, yeah. when Zillow announced the end of its iBuying program, you could not have found more people who were wanting to basically dance on the grave of Zillow's iBuying program. I mean, uh, real estate agents exactly. got yeah. so much. And yeah, all you had to do was look at social and people were like throwing a party. So, <laughs> you know, interesting to see that, you know, here's a company that's bridging the gap and and presumably finding agents who are really happy to work with them. Um, which I think would be a good strategy, right? I mean, for agents, for iBuyers, everyone's trying to serve the home buyer and get, you know, and make money in the process in a system that that is, you know, in a in a year that's going to be really challenging. But for those agents to see them as as not competition, to to want to work with them, and I think that's uh, going to be interesting to look at going forward. Yeah, for sure. I think that. Um... Yeah, and even Zillow is is trying to to recalibrate in in terms of you know focusing more on premium agent and being with the agent. Yeah, I mean the disruptors, you know the agents for years um, very understandably were like, well, wait, are isn't it us you're disrupting? And that that seems to have cooled down a bit. Matt, the last thing I want to talk about was the a topic that is front. Mm-hmm of, you know, front and center for most people in our industry, whether it's real estate or mortgage, and that is housing inventory has just been the bane of everyone's existence over the last year and and looks to not Mm -hmm. be letting up anytime soon. Um, You've been reporting and also other reporters have have, uh, been talking about, you know, what's going on with the home builders. And so I would love to pick your brain a little bit about Mm -hmm. that. Um, What are you finding when you're looking at the home builders? Yeah, it's it's a really... I mean, it's it's a dynamic that um, has persisted um, at least like through the pandemic, which is basically like home building companies like, you know, the home building industry is very fragmented. There are dozens of companies. It's not like, you know, car companies where you can name like the top 10 car companies. But, you know, the bigger ish home building companies like Lennar, Pulte Group, Taylor Morrison, they're making money, but they're like we could be doing so much more. Like there's so much demand out there. Like we could be building so much more than we're building right now. We are like not coming close to meeting demand. And in terms of the inventory, um, my colleague, Brooklyn Han did a write up of the census numbers last week, which were the census numbers for the month of February. And what the census numbers show is that Basically, and and I know that Logan has written um, columns about this, is that that basically 
if you if you look at like permits to build homes or housing starts which you know is what what it sounds like you know when you start building a home these things are all like the numbers are like fine i mean trend wise the numbers are like going up i think off the top of my head like you know home building starts are uh significantly up um from uh february of 2021 and even up from from january but you know you can't live in a home that you know has started to be built you can only live in a home that's finished and housing completions are you know continue to be down and and so if if the permits are going up and the starts are going up um you know that signals that people are thinking that they have the capital and they have like the regulatory approval to build but then something is happening along the way and that something may be a labor shortage it may be not getting like the right material it may be that the material um you know be it lumber or concrete or steel is just more expensive than they thought or won't come when they thought it would come and is creating this situation basically where everybody knows there's um you know a housing shortage in America there's a rental shortage in America there's a you know ownership shortage in America and but there's just like there's not it's not working i mean the process is not working whereby you you know apply apply to build a home build a home finish the home have a market for it like the demand is so exceeding the supply that it's it's you know it's it's a broken market system and so you know i mean that's a huge topic for any you know economist you know m- much less reporter to take on but i think that like one thing that i'm looking at right now is sort of alternatives to that um i'm looking at like the 3d printing of homes looking at like offsite construction like you know maybe we're returning to the prefab era of of home construction but basically like like how is this going to get better because empirically the last couple of years like the system that we have right now where um you know lumber comes in and then you know a crew is assigned to do the roofing a crew is assigned to you know put in the drywall to like make the bathroom it's um it's not working for the labor it's not working for the home buyer it's not working for you know the supply companies it's not even working for the home builders and and so um it's it's sort of an industry that you know maybe sort of at an inflection point the the home building industry that's exactly what i was going to say is the inflection point idea of that like you know when something is so there, there's been so much resistance and continues to be so much resistance to some of these building uh formats whether you know it's like a prefab home or or the materials that are used or whatever, that it it seems like it has to take this sort of pressure thing to break that open. Whether that will actually happen Mm -hmm. this time is is going to be, you know, something to watch because so much of that is in local hands, local zoning, local Mm -hmm. laws and regulations that it's hard to to affect change on that in a very, you know, in a very national kind of way. I personally I'm looking at uh, moving into a smaller market and Mm. um we were looking at homes and there just aren't a lot of really big home builders in this market. Like there's not a lot of the national players. And so, you know, we went to a a local builder and 
he is absolutely, he could, he could sell 10 homes if he had them for sale. But to your point, like all of those other things that have been conspiring this year, he doesn't have 10 homes to sell right now, you know? So it it is a really interesting time. Home building is um, got to be very challenging right now, because even though there is a huge demand, you know, we've talked about the different challenges that they're facing as far as supply uh, and short, you know, and, and labor. And one of the things that no one can get right now is, is garage doors. You, know, right. you can't finish a house. You cannot close a loan on the house if there's not a garage door there. Like, how are you securing your house, right? And just the idea that they have to hold that loan, you know, they've got the construction loan going before they can sell. These kind of things, I think, at least in what I can tell from what he's doing is constraining the amount of homes that he's willing to start. Because if he, literally, if he started 10 spec homes, he told me he could sell them tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, mm-hmm. there's other things at play. So... Great work on looking at that. We'll be uh, looking forward. I, I know you're looking right now and uh, you're reporting out another home building story and, and love to see that arc about just different materials, different ways of doing it. And, and what will the end result of that be? Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on, Matt. We will uh, always interesting to talk to you. We'll have you on again um, soon and catch up. And uh, thanks so much. Great. Thanks a lot, Sarah. According to a recent article on the Great Resignation by MIT Sloan Management Review, more than 40% of all employees were thinking about leaving their jobs at the beginning of 2021. And that figure only grew as the year went on. So how are leaders finding ways to retain valued employees? Or maybe you're even asking these questions as a leader yourself. Step one to addressing this, empowering team members to take ownership of their professional growth. This is why we've invited leadership coach and author Renee Rodriguez to join us for this HV Plus virtual masterclass. Think of this class as a one-stop shop on what you need to know to take your leadership to the next level. Go to housingwire.com to learn more and register. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.